0: Oh, did you guys sleep last night? <laughs> that was a silly, I just thought, you know, since four in the morning was the Friday night, that maybe last night you'd be tired enough that you would sleep, but that's okay. Sleep deprivation is, uh, well, it can be cured on a Sunday, so just have a good nap this afternoon. Uh, I'm Shane, in case you don't know me. I know the students, we got to hang out all weekend, but some of you up there didn't. Uh, I'm a professor at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, have been for seven years, Uh, But I'm also a husband of 13 years and a father of four. I think we even have a picture of my family that I'm very excited to go see here in a couple of hours. Uh, It's been a fun weekend here, but uh, with my second youngest, Maddox, who's in the front right there, he's in the back uh, listening. And every time I go back there, he says, "Uh, it was a pretty good speech, Dad. I'm like, speech? I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But this morning, I want to start off by acknowledging something. That it's easy to be close to God when you're on a mountaintop. But the problem is, we live in the valley. I mean, this weekend, this weekend has felt like a spiritual mountaintop. I mean, you're surrounded by your friends, some of whom are Christians, some of whom maybe even became. Christians this weekend. You're surrounded by sponsors and youth ministers that love you, that have been praying for you, pouring into you. You've been surrounded by great music, Christian music. You've heard an occasional Christian message. You've been saturated with the truth and the grace and the spirit of God. But the reality is this, it's easy to feel close to God on a mountaintop. But the problem is, is we live in the valley. (laughs) So here's the question I want to ask this morning. Whenever we come down off of the mountaintop, how do we live in the valley? How should we live in the valley? Living on the mountaintop is easy. Living in the valley? That's a completely different story turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I know you have your Bibles because we've done this, what, four times this weekend already? Yes, students? Okay. Guess what? Here's even the bigger trick. I hope you have your Bibles because we're not even going to have it on the screen today. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. You've been well-trained. You're all right. Luke chapter 5. My Bible, it's page 936, if that helps you. 936, Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me just kind of summarize what's happened so far. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He then is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He then goes to Nazareth, and because of his proclamation of his love for the Gentiles, he's run out of his own synagogue. But then he launches into a ministry where he is casting out these evil spirits. He's healing all kinds of people, and the crowds around Jesus are starting to swell. Then Luke chapter 5, verse 1 says this, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. They just wanted to hear Jesus preach. And the crowds are getting so big that the problem is, is that they're so close to him on the shores that when he speaks, not everybody can hear him. There's just too many. And so verse two says this, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who who are washing their nets. Why? Because the fishermen fish at night and they'd already been on this long fishing expedition and they, they, well, we'll find out later. They didn't catch much, (laughs) but they're cleaning their nets and he sees the boats and what Jesus is gonna ask is if he can get one of the boats and push out just a little bit from shore. And the reason why that that is a smart thing to do is because if you push out a little bit from shore and you speak, the water acts as a natural amplification system. Now the people in the back can hear. So he looks at Simon, verse 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon and asked him, hey, just put out a little bit from the shore. I want to speak to the people, but not everybody can hear me. Just push out a little bit from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The text has been building at this point. You're going, what's Jesus going to say? What's he going to say? What's he going to preach on this time? I mean, my goodness, Jesus' preaching is what saturates the text. It's what gives us life. It's what gives us truth. And what's weird is the beginning of verse 4. When he had finished speaking, you're like, what? Like, like we've been building to the point where he's going to talk. Comes to the point for him to talk, and it's like, yeah, 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 that's not the point of this. As a matter of fact, we only get red letters twice. And one of them comes right here in verse 4. He said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. I don't know if you caught it, but that's a pretty offensive thing for Jesus to say. I mean, it's, it's kind of a punkish thing for him to say. You see, because Jesus is a peasant carpenter. Not a professional fisherman. He has the occupational authority to talk about the structure of the boat. He has the occupational authority to talk about, you know, the wooden oars that maybe row the boat. He has the occupational authority to talk about the quality of the driftwood that's going by the boat. But to tell a professional fisherman how to fish, that's bold. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, put out into deep water, professional fisherman, and let the nets down. For a catch. Here's where it also gets a little more awkward. We're in mid-morning, maybe early afternoon. And these fishermen have already been fishing all night. Why? Because in the ancient world, on the Lake of Gennesaret, if you wanted to catch fish, you fished at night. It gets a little strange. Not only is he telling a professional fisherman to do something, but he's even telling him to do it at the wrong time. Let's push pause on this story just for a minute. We'll come back to it. But in my life, Jesus has asked me to do some pretty crazy things. Things that, frankly, on the surface just made absolutely no sense at all. Or I'm going, come on, Jesus, really? That's what you want me to do? Are you sure that you've thought this through? <laughs> things like the summer after 9 11, calling me to go minister to Muslims in the Middle East, to share the gospel to them. Or telling my family, you need to buy a smaller home, sell the one you have, get a smaller one. Or telling me saying, hey, you're going to sell everything and you and your family are going to move overseas for around three to four months. And I'll be honest with you, in these crazy things he's told us to do, it's gotten us into some pretty sticky situations. I've had a gun pulled on me in Guatemala City while we were investigating sex trafficking of young boys almost had a plane crash uh, three summers ago on a way to go speak at an event, was pulled into the back alley in the Middle East, didn't know if I was going to make it out of there alive. Don't get me wrong, when Jesus calls you to some crazy things, sometimes it doesn't end the way you think it will. (laughs) But here's the question of the morning. When we're living life in the valley, how should we live? I mean, it's easy to feel close to God on the spiritual mountaintop whenever you receive the message. It's a lot different actually living it out whenever you're walking through the valley. You know, this weekend we've talked a lot about when we come to Jesus, we need to embrace him as Savior, absolutely. But we cannot just pay lip service to him as being our Lord, Because whenever we embrace Jesus as a savior, and if we only focus on him as a savior, the problem is, is that we can have a Christianity that begins to serve us. Because the savior portion of Jesus is all about us. We get forgiveness of our sins. We get to go to heaven. We get this mansion in heaven. I mean, is this true? I mean, surely, surely we all can agree vocally. Is this true? (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of cool to feel released through the grace of Jesus from the burdens of your sin. But this is not where the story stops. Jesus is not just the Savior, He is also your Lord. And the reason why we don't like to talk about that as much is because it's about everything you must lose. When you bow your knee to Jesus as your Lord, you give up your dreams. When you bow to Jesus as your Lord, you give up your rights. When you bow to Jesus as your Lord, he becomes your master and you become his slave. Where do I get that? James chapter 1 verse 1 and Jude chapter, or well, the only chapter, verse 1. The half-brothers of Jesus both write a book and guess how they introduce themselves. I am a doulos of Jesus, which means a slave of the king. You cannot divorce the grace of Jesus from the calling of the King because He kind of expects you to do things. Let me explain it like this Uh, I went to Ozark Christian College from 2000 to 2004. I went there, and, and I had a ton of great memories. I mean, I loved my, my, uh, my roommates, good friends, incredible worship, incredible classes. I loved my time there. But one of my absolute favorite things was, was playing on the soccer team. I loved it. I loved the smell of fresh-cut grass. I, I loved the camaraderie. I loved playing on the soccer team. I mean, I didn't really play, per se, you know what I mean? But I loved being on the soccer team. And I just, I just loved taking part of it. I mean, you know, I didn't really practice much, and I, I didn't really have a uniform, and I, I didn't listen to the coach, and I never even touched a soccer ball. But I loved being on the soccer team. It was my absolute favorite thing of college. I know what some of you are thinking. You're a bona fide psycho. <laughs> because if you didn't playing a game, if you didn't practice, didn't listen to the coach, you didn't have a uniform, didn't touch a soccer ball. Guess what, Shane? You weren't on the soccer team. Yes, I was. And it was awesome. And I loved it. I mean, I walked across a soccer field once or twice. I knew the rules of soccer. And I loved being on the team. Okay. That's absurd. We all know it. Totally absurd. Just as absurd as saying... I belong to a kingdom, I just don't do anything the king says to do. Listen, at that moment, you're playing on your own imaginary soccer team. No, the reality is this. The cross says, come as you are. And lay all your burdens down, lay all of the things down that are weighing you from unforgiveness to sin, lay it down at the cross, receive his grace so that you can be transformed to do the work of the king. I know what some of you may be thinking, but before we talk about that, let's just see if this plays itself out in the rest of the Bible. Turn to Revelation. Some of you are like, oh no, it's okay. I know the book's abused. (laughs) I know, I know the the book is either abused or ignored, one of the two. We're not going to do either one this morning, it's okay. But I do want to point out that even in this book that is so obscure at the end, it carries a consistent message from the New Testament, and that's this. The king expects you to do things. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation are written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And it's all in red letters, so you know Jesus said it. It's all written in red letters and one of the things that you find to five out of the seven churches of revelation The same phrase is said to them five times out of the seven churches The phrase I know your deeds Is spoken five times Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 to the church of ephesus. I know your deeds Revelation chapter 2 verse 19 to the church of thyatira. I know your deeds Revelation chapter three, verse one, to the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. Revelation chapter three, verse eight, to the church of Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Three, 15, to the church of Laodicea, I know your deeds. And if you have been doing the work of the king, there is nothing sweeter that you could find in red letters than that phrase. Where, yeah, sure, the world may not recognize what you've been doing, but the king knows your deeds. Oh, but if you're living in rebellion... There is nothing more frightening to hear in red letters than I know your deeds. And to Jesus, they kind of matter. Chapter three, verse two to the church of Sardis, Jesus yells at them. He says, wake up, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Whoa, Jesus, that's a little rowdy. Turn to Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, the second out of seven beatitudes or blessings in the book of Revelation. It says, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit. They will rest for their, from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. It's in red letters. Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. In the book of Revelation, what you do and what you don't do kind of matters. Some of you at this point are going like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Listen here, hippie. Like, this sounds like works righteousness. Sounds like what you're saying is, is that all that matters is works. But have you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? To which I would say, let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this. Some of you could probably quote it right now. For it is by grace you have been saved, yes, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not by deeds, shame, so that no one can boast. Listen, hear me very clearly. You are saved by one work, and that's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. I mean, there is only one work that can redeem you from your sins, and it's the sacrificial lamb on Calvary. However, have you read verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2? The very next verse It's connected, I know that, because it starts off with the word for. As a result of these two verses, verses 8 and 9, for we are God's workmanship, created, transformed in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Listen, you've not been saved to the grace of Jesus so that you can sit in a comfortable pew. You've been saved by the grace of Jesus so that you can get out there and do the work of the king. And we've got to have this enmeshed into who we are because Jesus is your savior. Oh, don't get me wrong. He totally is. But he is also your Lord and he kind of expects you to do some stuff. Let's go back to Luke chapter five and pick up our story again. So Jesus pushes out a little bit from shore. He begins to speak. We don't get to hear what he says, but he looks at Simon in verse four and he says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon gets a little bit flustered. He's like, "Um, Master, Lord, uh, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Cause you know, nighttime, that's when you fish. And we didn't catch anything. But you know, I mean, to humor you, I mean, to respect you, because you say so, I'll let down the nets, so let them down. And then what happens? What happens in verse 6? What happens? Yeah, it starts to become a pretty big catch. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So Simon, they signal over their partners who happened to be a guy named James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They say, you got to go over and help us. They signaled their partners over in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. That's a cool trick. Especially for a peasant carpenter, that's a pretty cool trick. Yeah, what he asked them to do seemed pretty crazy. Tell him professional fishermen how to fish. But when Jesus asked you to do crazy things, One of the things you have to ask is, do you trust him? Simon, don't get me wrong. There is hesitation in his voice. But Simon says, because you are master, I will do whatever it is you've asked me to do, no matter how crazy it may seem. And he lets down the nets for a catch, and it starts to sink the boat with how much they're pulling in. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You know, one of the things I tell my students a lot of times is this. Listen, I better never hear you say, Jesus is my homeboy. I've seen that on t-shirts. I don't, I'm not a fan of that. No, he's your Lord. There is a difference. Don't be wrong. If your Lord decides to look at you and say, Actually, I call you friends, that is a gift from God. And if he decides to look at you and say, I call you friends, that I'm gonna call you homeboy, you say, sweet, I'm still gonna call you Lord. This idea that Jesus is somebody that we can flippantly just refer to minimizes the reality that he is the cosmic creator. He is the Logos. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Christ. And what's another word for Christ, students? King. Go away from me, Lord. For I'm not worthy of you. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon... Don't be afraid. That is, that command is the most frequent command in the entire Bible. There's 365, one for every day. Don't be afraid. Why? Man, fear is a powerful weapon of the enemy. Fear can get people to do some pretty crazy stuff. Fear can get us and drive us to do some pretty frightening things that are frankly not worthy of our king. And God says, who do you fear but me? And yet whenever we come to him and we fall down before him, he says, you don't need to be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, Simon, you'll be a fisher of men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Did you hear that last phrase? left everything and followed him. That's crazy. Left everything and followed him. They left their business, not just their business, their family business. They left the greatest catch in the history of fishing in the boat to follow him. Why? Oh, because he is definitely where grace is found because he is the savior, but he is also... Your Lord, when the Lord says, "Come," you come." And when the Lord says, "Go, you go." And guess what? Don't even ask the question, "Why?" It'll just hurt you. Don't even ask where, Just respond to the call. You see, it is so easy to feel close to God when you're on a mountaintop. But we live life in the valley. And life in the valley is hard. Life in the valley is painful. But if you take the leap, if you bow your knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you bow your knee to him as the king that can give you the grace that we all desperately need, if you take the leap, everything about you changes. where you sit in the cafeteria, changes. How you treat your enemies, changes. How you treat your brothers and your sisters and your mom and your dad, changes. How you forgive even those that have wounded you, changes. Where you go, what you buy, what you don't buy, what you do, what you don't do, changes. Everything about you changes. Otherwise, we're playing on our own imaginary soccer team. Like, is this a game? Is Christianity merely something that makes us feel good, or is it something that transforms everything that we are, even down to how we use our cell phones? We have some Ozark students in here, and we go through syllabus day, although it takes like a week. In every line, I tell them there's theology behind this, so we get to the line whenever I say, "Yeah, in my classes, no cell phones." And they're like, "What? They're like it's, I'm a borderline cyborg? It's attached to my hand." I'm like, I get it, I get it, I get it. No cell phones. Why? There's something dangerous about cell phones. And it's this. It's probably not what you think. It's this reality that everyone expects us to be accessible at every location at every moment. That's called omnipresent. And there is only one that is omnipresent. And whenever you try to act like God, things go bad for you. It's like, listen, if I don't respond to your text message in three days, it's okay. Like 60 years ago, you had to write a letter, Okay. It took three days just to get there. We're going to be fine. But because we are constantly putting ourselves in a position to act like God, it's no wonder that we're all overwhelmed with anxiety. It's no wonder. Why do I use that illustration? Because your belief in Jesus, your submitment to him as Lord, should even affect the way in which you engage your phone. It changes everything. Here's the question. Here's the question. Do you trust him? I know it's printed on our money, but I'm asking you seriously. Do you trust him? Because he will call you to some crazy things, and it will lead you to some pretty uh, sticky situations, and it will, you will experience some pain. But do you trust him? And if so, then take the leap. You won't regret it. I'm telling you, he's worth it. Take the leap. Leave everything if you must. Take the leap to follow him. Why? Because grace cannot be found in anyone but him. And victory cannot be found in anyone but him. Because he is both savior and And Lord, let's pray. Lord Jesus, mighty King, sovereign Father, I pray, Father, that you will ignite us. I pray, Father, that you will send us. I pray, Father, that Bentonville will never be the same because of what you have done here this weekend. I am so thankful, Lord, for this generation. And may, Father, us that are a little bit further down the road, may we be humble enough to learn from them. Father, I pray that you grab a hold of their hearts and that you change the world, a world that is desperate for you a world that is grabbing for you, that is grabbing for all the wrong things. Father, please invade them with your spirit. Invade them with the hands and feet of your kingdom. Oh God, don't let us be the same. Holy Spirit, pursue us with the zeal that you pursued us, even in our wandering. Oh God, hear my prayer. To your name, Lord, we pray all these things. Amen.